You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Talk Recorded live. Hi, everybody. Today is August 31st, 2015. Yes, it's almost the end of the summer. This is The Mixed Experience, and I'm your host, Heidi DeRoe. Uh, this is a weekly podcast about being racially and culturally mixed, hosted by a mixed chick sharing mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world. Today, we have a great guest, and it's not just because she has a great book, but also because I feel like we're going to come up, maybe not with new answers today, but maybe with new questions around issues of what is the mixed experience and how do we move the needle on the conversation i know you hear me say that all of the time but why not right like let's say something new try something new think something new that's how things are going to change before we start i wanted to uh, make a quick announcement you guys know if you follow the podcast that i have a few different projects of love one is my writing uh by the way i'm a novelist that's how I make my living. And uh, today, August 31st, is the last day that the ebook of The Girl Who Fell From the Sky will be on sale for $1.99. So you still have the rest of today, August 31st, <laughs> to get a copy. And you can get a copy on your Kindle or your Nook or your Kobo or whatever it is. And you can also even get it as a gift. If you're listening to the podcast, I know you probably already have a copy of the book. So why not get an ebook copy for a friend? That would be awesome. That's how I make my living. The rest of the stuff I do for free because it's important to me. And one of the projects that's really important to me, obviously, is this podcast. But also, there's this thing called the Mixed Remix Festival that I dedicate an enormous amount of time and effort and love and energy and imagination to. And we have a video that you must, must see. We have put a little clip together of one of the panel presentations from last June festival. Uh, the panel was so awesome. It was called What's So Funny About Being Mixed. We wanted to share all of it and we still may, but there was a lot of choice language in it <laughs> in a funny way for the most part. And it was also in part serious. But we have a great little uh, kind of mashup of what happened. So if you go to YouTube and just look up What's So Funny About Being Mixed, one, you'll see the recap video, which is very short. But the one I want you to watch is four minutes and 17 seconds. So go check that out. And then also um, head over to www.mixedremix.org. Make sure you're on our uh, mailing list because we're sending out important announcements in these coming weeks. And in fact, tomorrow we'll be sending out a big announcement about when we can get together again for the next Mixed Remix Festival. Okay, so today, again, we have a wonderful guest. Her name is Susan Katz-Miller. She's the author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. Um, I'm super excited to have her on the show. She's a journalist, and she's both the child, an interfaith child and an interfaith parent. So her father is Jewish. Her mother is Protestant. She grew up in Reform Judaism. 
After marrying a Protestant, she and her husband decided to raise their children in both religions in a community of interfaith families. And she has served as the board co-chair of the Interfaith Families Project of Greater Washington, D.C. She's written um, as a journalist for a ton of wonderful folks. And I even forgot to ask her this offline, but I wonder if we were at Newsweek together at some point. Um, but I think she's much younger, so probably not. Anyway, she is writing about something that I think that people don't understand a lot, and and that's a great thing because she's a great teacher, especially in this book, and also because I think she's setting out a new paradigm for us in the mixed experience. And so if you follow the podcast or me, usually what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the mixed experience is a, a racial and cultural connection or difference that brings you together. But as part of that story, many times, much of the time, there's also the, the faith uh, that is part of that equation where people are deciding who, what, and where they are, they get to be, and what they want to name themselves as. In any event, I, I'm excited to um, have our guest on. I just want to say, yay, I finally got her on the line. Uh, welcome, Susan. How are you? Great. It's so wonderful to finally have this real-life conversation because you and I have been interacting on Twitter for years now and having these mini-conversations, and now we're having a, a, a audible conversation. <laughs> I know. I can't wait to hear what we all have to say, and, and hopefully we <laughs> create confusion around these issues and maybe some great new ideas. But I have to start off in the traditional way before we go on. Okay. Uh, the but first question is? We like to say that it's complexity, not confusion, but yes. <laughs> oh, I like that much better. Hmm, I have to work this in. I like that very much better. Okay, so uh, fire away. <laughs> okay, so your first question is, what are you? <laughs> I am a... Okay, I'm an interfaith child of Jewish and Christian background, and that is not a one-word answer, and that really frustrates people. Yes, <laughs> but I bet you can relate more. to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I mean, you've been dealing with this for a long time. Has the response to that answer varied over time? What I see happening is that more and more people are becoming familiar with the idea that it's possible to raise children with an education in more than one religion. Um, Pew Research put out a study uh, two years ago showing that 25% of intermarried Jewish parents are raising their kids, quote, partly Jewish and partly something else. So even though people aren't necessarily comfortable with this idea, they're more likely to know someone who's taking this approach, who's using this strategy, who's educating children in both or who was raised with both. And so as people become more familiar with this, they're becoming, you know, more comfortable with it. Well, was there ever a time you didn't feel this confidence of being able to state your complexity in that way? And what was that evolution, if not? You know, I think I, I feel like I can state it, but the response has changed. I mean, the response early on was often a flat, you can't do that or you can't be that. And now there's a more nuanced response of, well, I know people are trying to be that, but I still don't like it sort of thing. 
<laughs> right. It comes up over and over again in your book that the problem really isn't in the person who's identifying with Two-Face. It's the response. It's the resistance of other people to your own self-identification, which, I mean, I, I know a lot of mixed people have dealt with. Right. That That's one of the many parallels that I see. Um, you know, it's so interesting because a lot of interfaith families are also racially mixed families and vice versa. And the two challenges are, you know, there's limits to the metaphor. There's limits because, you know, I think somebody who is mixed in terms of race or, you know, ethnicity or culture is immediately identifiable a lot of the time as they walk through life. Whereas, you know, if you have a Muslim parent and a Hindu parent, people don't necessarily know that looking at you or they, they, don't, they don't even think to ask what are you until you get into a religion conversation with them. And then when they find out about your parents, then they ask, what are you? Um, so they're, they're, they're looking for that clarity. You know, people seek clarity, and they really struggle with the fluidity, the flexibility, the non-binary. And those are all things that are probably really familiar to you. Yes, very. Well, and I really I want to talk more about the parallels and differences yeah. between these experiences, but I also just want you to talk a little bit about the book itself, Being Both, Embracing Two Religions and One Interfaith Family. How did it come about, and what did you, start, you set out to do with the book? Well, my family is a happy three-generation interfaith family, and I just did not see that experience reflected in the literature. Almost all of the literature about interfaith families was very defensive, um, very much trying to push families into making a singular religious choice, um, you know, talking about interfaith families as being a great challenge, and there was none of the joy in there, and that frustrated me. In fact, the original title for the book was going to be The Joy of Being Both, and the, the publishers wanted a shorter title, so I like being both. <laughs> it's punchy. But yes. you know, I was I was a little bit sad when we lost the joy out of the title. So, but I was very purposeful in putting embracing two religions. I really wanted the embrace in there, that that positive language. So, there's a memoir strand that runs through the book where I talk about my own experience and the experience with my children who are now 21 and 18, so they're they're grown. Um, but also as a reporter, I wanted to get some data and some stories other than anecdotes and other than just my stories. And I looked around and really academics were not studying this or the few that had studied it, uh, you know, the studies were being funded by organizations that had agendas that, that, you know, had religious connections. So it really wasn't objective uh, data. So I did my own surveys. I surveyed 250 parents who were raising their children with both religions about how this experience had gone for them, why they chose it. And then I surveyed 50 young adults who had been through formal interfaith education programs run by interfaith family communities. So part of what I did was a chronology of a sort of a grassroots movement of interfaith families coming together and saying, we want to do both. We want to educate our children in both. 
and they have formed these communities in, in which they do that. So the community that I have here in Washington, D.C., where I live, in which I raised my children, we have both a rabbi and a minister on staff, and every Sunday school classroom has a Jewish teacher and a Christian teacher who co-teach and who are modeling that relationship of respect and who are available to you know, give stories from both sides. So. And you also go through in the book this really long list of myths about interfaith children and raising interfaith kids. And so many of them resonated with me. But I think mm. the one I think that is loudest for people who hear about interfaith families, especially a, a Jewish Christian interfaith uh, experience, uh, on page 67, myth, Jesus is an insurmountable problem. <laughs> <And> <laughs> you, you tell yeah. this wonderful story about your son, who I think was five years old at the time. Can you share that? Oh, gosh. I'm not even remembering the story. <laughs> well, then I will share it with them. I you just to steal your thunder because I, I was really struck by this story. You talk about your son playing with a cousin, and he, he says, uh, like, in frustration, he says, Jesus. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> your sister, uh, who has an interfaith child, reprimands him. And I don't know if you want to finish the story now or... Um, no, you finish it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so well, it, was just, it was just so lovely because, it, well, let me tell the story. So she, he gets reprimanded and he asks, well, is Jesus a bad word? And, and your sister explained to him that, no, it's just if you say it like it sounds like a bad word, then someone's feelings might get hurt. And he says, well, what is a Jesus? Right. And she explains <laughs> that Christian people believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Jewish people don't believe that. And then the, your five-year-old son says, and we're both, so we sort of believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, and and what I write is that actually I thought that was a great answer, that I don't consider that an immature answer or a confused answer we do sort of believe it. In other words, a lot of us, whether we're the Jewish partner or the Christian partner, we're comfortable with talking about Jesus as somebody who historically had a huge influence on both of our religions and who is an incredibly inspiring metaphor to a large percentage of the world's population so whether or not you know you see Jesus as your personal savior, if you do, you're a Christian. If you don't, you're not. Um, you have to be comfortable with talking about the parts of our religions that are different as well as the parts that are similar. So if we only dwell on what Judaism and Christianity have in common, it's really going to be a kind of a least common denominator, kind of kind of a you know kumbaya it's going to be too bland. It's not going to have any of that kind of jagged particularities. We need to grapple with the differences and be comfortable talking about them. And so that's what we try to teach our children to do. Because, you know, whether they grow up to claim Judaism as their singular religious identity or claim Christianity or claim some other religion, we want them to understand where they came from, to understand the religion of both of their parents, all of their grandparents, 
and to be comfortable having those conversations. Well, so you go through many of these myths and you talk about them. Um, I kind of, I want to address the things that really struck me within the Mm. book because I'm reading it through my own lens of growing up biracial and bicultural, which, um, you know, is, is a certain thing as well, which is different than just being biracial, I think, in America. Yes. But what I, I almost started to laugh, and I wish we had this parallel around race. It, for bl- the black-white mix, we call it the one-drop rule, but you talk about the red uh, interfaith sock rule. marriage, the red sock rule. Yeah. <laughs> can, you, well, can you explain that? Yes. Well, this is the idea that even if, the Judaism in your family is very historically attenuated. Even if you only have one Jewish great-great-grandparent that like a red sock in a load of white laundry, it's going to color your experience. And that was not my metaphor. I actually took that from an earlier book. But I think this is where we get into some interesting parallels with the black-white family experience whereby the minority, and in this case, in the case of religion, this this would be Judaism, um, has a really outsized effect. And and that's for multiple reasons. And and, and one is um, you know oppression and 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 profiling and you know if your last name is Cohen, even if you only have one Jewish grandparent, people are going to perceive of you as Jewish in our culture. And so you're going to have to grapple with the Jewish part of your identity. Even if you were raised 100%, say, you know, Presbyterian, and maybe even both of your parents were Presbyterian, but if you had that one Jewish grandparent and and you inherited that name, it's going to color that whole load of laundry pink. Um, And so I think a lot of us feel a loyalty to stand up for that minority religion and to defend um, the Jewish people, especially when we encounter anti-Semitism. And I think right. this is probably parallel where, you know, if you encounter racism, that, that provokes you to stand up and say, whoa, that's not cool. You may not realize it looking at me, but I'm, you know, black or Jewish or, you know, what, whatever that minority identity is. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it exerts this huge pressure, which can feel unfair where if you you actually have chosen in the case of religion to say be a Hindu or be a Catholic and not be a Jew then you have the right to define yourself and people have to respect the identity that you choose for yourself now that's where it gets a little bit dangerous in terms of the histories and the parallels with race I think well, also, I mean, with religion, so, you know, I have a friend who, a, a male friend who's gay, and he grew up very much in the church and didn't come out until, I think, well after college, and then decided to leave the church because there was no um, place for him in that. And, right. you know, he's a, ra- he's a rationalist also, and he decided to say to himself and others, you know, if I can't follow what the rules are of the religion, then I don't ha- I don't get to be that religion. The religion gets to set the rules, and and for me that may be one of the places where I'm like, well, 
Is that what the resistance is for people who refuse to acknowledge interfaith families or the viability or sustainability of an interfaith family that they think, look, if you can't do it, just go do your own thing. You're not doing us. Yes, except, you know, the problem with that is, you know, we teach our children that you you have to respect the membership rules of a given group. So we teach them if, for instance, you want to be, you know, an Orthodox Jew when you grow up, you're going to have to go to the mikvah and, and do all of the rituals to undergo a complete uh, conversion and, and abide by those rules that that Orthodox community has decided on because they get to make those rules. You don't. So mm-hmm. if you want to assume that label, you have to respect the rules. But that's different from your internal identity. And, and again, here we go back to, you know, part of what's interesting here is because Judaism is not simply a religion because it's, some people call it a civilization, you know, it's got some sort of a peoplehood component, which is not exactly ethnic. It's very complicated because there are different ethnicities, you know, within right. Judaism. But um, it's very hard to just put it aside, even if theologically you choose another religion and you abide by all the rules for membership in that other religion, you know, because other people are still going to think you're Jewish because you're called Cohen or, you know, actually assume you're Jewish based on your looks sometimes, Um you have those quasi-racial ethnic components that you're dealing with. So it's very complicated. <laughs> it is It is very complicated. And I'm sitting here going, I hope I'm not saying like stupid things out of these questions that I'm coming up with that are really just, I, I'm grappling with trying to figure out what can I learn from what you already know about having an interface experience that works and is, I don't know, for the most part, but definitely it has a place in community, whereas I'm not sure that mixed race, mixed culture identity necessarily has a place. Um, and let me back this up a little bit more. You, your family ended up finding groups, these grassroots groups that came out of you know, this longing for so many families to find a place do you, is this the only way it works? I mean, is is there not a place for interfaith families within the venues that exist, within the synagogues, within the churches? Does it, does it have to be a separate community? Is no. that one of the things yeah. I think the mixed race community is grappling with at this point? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think it's really important for children to feel they have community and for families to feel they have community. And there are many, many ways you can get that. Um, so if you're an interfaith family, you might decide, look, both parents are essentially secular. They may not feel any need for, you know, any of this. And they might get a, you know, a great sense of community through their backpacking group or their, their community pool. And that's enough for them. And, you know, more and more among millennials, we see people not interested in affiliating with uh, religious institutions at all or, or with these more do-it-yourself groups either. Um, but, more and more, I'm happy to say there are going to be synagogues and churches that welcome interfaith families, and there are families who find that that is the best solution for them. 
So, you know, one family might say, you know, what's really going to work for us is that we're going to be a Jewish family even though we have some Christian heritage. And if that works for them, mazel tov. My point in the book is just that that doesn't work for every family. So each family needs to come to their own decision, and it's really based on what one parent feels and and their background and what the other parent feels and, and what communities are available to them geographically and, you know, what influence the extended family has, all of this gets, you know, factored in. And families may change their minds. You know, even it's not the best thing for the kids to sort of be yanked from one community to another. But it certainly has happened that families find a better fit somewhere else and move along, just like they might move from one church to another church because, you know, they don't like the new minister or they don't like the politics or whatever. So... If we have a new language for interfaith families, um, does that help things? Because I know in the book you write about uh, yourself as as well as many of the people you interviewed having a difficulty around the terminology. So you you say that you don't like half Jew. I can imagine. (laughs) I wouldn't like that either. I'm not partial to saying I'm half anything. I like to think I'm a whole something. Right. and then, of course, there's the troubled term of being a Michelin in oh, no. Hitler's journey, <laughs> no. right? So you don't want that. And I, I don't I think recently, anyone's trying to reclaim that, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so, so, but if there were if there were good terminology around these things, does that change the conversation, or or what is the preferred terminology? I, you know, I, I like interfaith. It, it's to me, it has a positive sense, and it dovetails with. The attempts at interfaith dialogue and interfaith activism of, of, you know, having Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, and Christians, and pagans, and atheists all work together on community service projects and get along. And, and I see interfaith families as having an important role in that kind of interfaith dialogue and activism. And so I like the fact that we share the word interfaith, even though it can be confusing, because when you talk about interfaith and you don't, define what that is. It, it could be interfaith families or it could be interfaith dialogue and sometimes they're very different and sometimes interfaith dialogue isn't really welcoming of interfaith families, believe it or not. They, they'd rather have a model where there's, you know, one Jew, one Christian, one Muslim and they don't want any, <laughs> they don't want any blurring of boundaries. The blurring right. makes them nervous and the interfaith families bring the blur with them and they don't like that. But, I, you know, I've been working on... That could on, be our new tagline, bring the blur. Bring the blur. I love it. I love it. Anyway, so, but, you know, faith is a problem for some people. Faith sounds actually kind of Christian. Um, other religions, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, don't actually put a big emphasis on faith. They put more emphasis on practice and history. So... Um, and then interfaith people some, sometimes object to that if one or of or the other of the part of the partners is atheist. If you have an atheist and a Jew, or an atheist and a Christian, or an atheist and a Muslim, is that an interfaith relationship, or what do you call that? It becomes very complicated. People have said, you know, it should be interworld view, but that's so vague. So <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm just gonna stick with interfaith, whether people like it or not. So okay. Um, I also kept thinking about this idea of authenticity, that so often people who are of of mixed race uh, have to deal with this question of, well, how black are you? Or how, you know, how Japanese are you? How Filipino are you really? Like, 
prove it, speak the language, you know, do a little jig, show us the food you eat, whatever it is. Is that also a question that is part that, of growing that, up interfaith? It's definitely something that people throw at us, like you're not being authentically this or that. And I am definitely declaring myself as like post-authenticity. I don't. I, it was. It, 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 it was. It you was you a, have a lot of great words here, Susan. I, I've got to check in with you. Post authenticity. <laughs> Tell me no, more about this. this I like is, this. No, this is really important. Um, it was actually a rabbinical student that I interviewed for my book. He's a rabbi now who said to me, "Anytime somebody uses the word authentic, a red flag should go up, because authentic, you know." Compared to what, or you know, based on what historical baseline, or, or yeah, compared to when? <laughs> yes, compared to where and when and who. It's usually some agenda that they have about you know, authentic means authentic, you know, by their standard. And I basically don't recognize all of that because I know that the history of religion and of race, if I can, uh, have been very complex, very fluid, and terms have been defined and redefined throughout history. I mean, the whole idea of a religion is actually a pretty new idea historically that wasn't even a concept. So um, I don't, I, I get very uh, suspicious when people start asking or pro prodding about authenticity. Because I, I love the way that you, you bring up this idea of history also mm. because it is a matter of recognizing rather than keeping our amnesia about how complicated these stories have been from the yeah. beginning of time. So when I was reading your book, one of the kind of go-to books I had for a short time, I guess I need to break it out again, was um, Martin Buber. And uh, it just yeah. blew my mind that he was in an interfaith marriage. How is that possible? Yes, and people don't ever talk about it much, you know. What What is going on there? Tell me more. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear to people who've really studied Buber and his work that the fact that he was married to a woman who was not Jewish originally had a huge influence on his ideas, which are now, you know, venerated and and studied um the idea of the you know i and thou of the relationship yes. between between god and and human beings um even he wrote about his uh, you know relationship with his cats i believe but you know sort of interspecies communication <laughs> but um the idea that the other is not necessarily comprehensible but that they are embraceable this is something that my beloved Rabbi Harold White, who died this morning, used to always oh, quote so from Buber. Yeah, I'm kind of in shock today. But he was the rabbi for 10 years with our Interfaith Families Project here in Washington. And he studied with Buber and with Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, so he was a, a great historical resource for our community and a great support for interfaith families. But um, he loved to quote Buber about the other being embraceable. But I don't even like to talk about others because, as I say to people, I can't other a Jew or other a Christian because they're both within me. So how can I other myself, right? 
Right, exactly. Like when people want to talk about black people or white people, I'm thinking you're. This is very complicated for me. I don't think I can join yeah. in that conversation whatsoever. Exactly. Um, they're, they're all my people, right? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that makes it wonderful and it makes it difficult sometimes because it's it's hard for people to comprehend that. Yes. Do you exactly. think there is um? Do. You, what am I trying to say? I can I break in and say something? Yes, please break yeah. in. I, I before you know before we end, I just want to make the point that of the, the of the many families who are both mixed race and interfaith, um, and we have many in our community who are raising their kids with Judaism and Christianity, and those families see it working because they think their children understand having connection to both races, and therefore they also understand having connection to both religions. But there are other mixed-race or transracial families, both kinds, that want the simplicity and the clarity of one religion in the family, even though they are an interfaith family. And I totally understand that. And, and you know, again, families have the right and the responsibility to make this choice for themselves. And we have the right and responsibility to respect the choices that, that these families make. So, you know, if you're a black and white family who is Jewish and Christian and you decide our kids are going to be black and Jewish, fine, that's good. You know, as long as you understand that those children might grow up and make different decisions for themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because well, that's I, what I kids do. I think we're do. absolutely on the same page with that. That you, that my hope always is that, you know, in a family, you're given all the options that are available to you so that you get to choose at some point or not choose can, and just yeah. continue what your your uh, family has done, your family of origin has done. Or okay, even, so, even when you're given a singular label, like we know your parents are of two different whatevers, but you are this and you are that, at least give those kids the education in the other side of the family so that they understand the culture, the theology, the practices of their extended family. And, you know, whether or not they are ever going to choose to be anything other than the labels that you gave them at birth, they'll be more educated people in the world, and that's good for the world. So, Susan, do you have just a little more time? Because I have these very convoluted questions or I, yes. I don't know. There, there were a couple more things in your book I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if I even have a fully formed question around them, but you do of uh, these uh, many anecdotal stories about parents uh, of in, who are of different faiths raising kids, and you profile them and talk about what some of their experiences are. And so I was struck by, in particular, two different people. One who was a, a man who grew up Jewish, and married someone who was Christian. He was a conservative Jewish man, uh, married a Christian woman. And he says at some point, I'm beginning to bring faith into my religion now. It didn't exist growing up. It was just ritual. Mm, So that I can mm -hmm. help raise children in a faithful household. I don't know. Can you help unpack that? And I feel like there's some way that this connects with teaching or teaching race or cultural identification mm-hmm. or difference? I, I don't know. Can you help me out here? Um, you're saying it has to do with how they're different, maybe? Well, I think it ha- there's yeah. – I actually think there's a similarity to it. Oh. That 
I'm, you know, I don't know. You have to tell me about the parallels. But, I, I mean, I can uh, explain a little bit, I think, what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of us who were raised Jewish in the 60s and 70s especially, and my parents chose one religion for us. They chose Judaism. So I was raised with a Jewish-only education. Um, but, you know, reform con- and conservative, to some degree, Judaism in the, in those eras a lot of people describe as very intellectual, but a little bit dry, um, and it didn't have a lot of the kind of passion that you would find in an Orthodox Jewish community or in a lot of Christian communities. Mm-hmm. And I think that that faith part, the kind of the part that has to do more with mysticism, with um, spirituality. Uh, in some cases, we see the Christian partner grew up with more of that, and the Jewish partner didn't grow up with as much of it. And so when they come together as a family, um, I see a lot of these Jewish partners getting excited about faith and spirituality and mysticism from their Christian partner's experience. Now, what's interesting is that Judaism has now sort of re-injected a lot of that into the practice um there's new newer forms of Judaism Jewish renewal in particular that really stresses um the music and the dance and that passion and uh even a lot of reform and conservative synagogues are now infusing the practice with a lot more of that kind of um spirituality I would say as you're talking, I'm I'm trying to think about why that struck me so hard, and I think maybe it has to do with my own personal experience of mm. learning race at at a late age, I guess. You know, I was 11 before I understood that there was something called black and there was something called white, that, mm. that it had a meaning beyond just the color in America. And, and my own experience of learning about race and then learning about what, being a black American was, was an intellectual endeavor for me. It was very much through books and through great authors and figuring out what the history was and then placing myself into it. And then when I met my husband and, you know, as we were courting and got married, he is African-American. His family is actually very mixed. (laughs) But I learned from him that kind of this thing you're talking about, this joy of, Mm. you know, just the, kind of the regular dayness, the, the, the passion, I don't know if that's the right word, of what it meant to live in, live as an African-American. And well, so maybe I, that's where I was coming. I'm, I'm totally talking out loud and having therapy with you right now. Sorry. No, no, I, I totally get what you're saying because what's really important here in both cases, I think, is, is the, the lived experience that, you know, you can raise kids and teach them about both religions or about both races through books and lessons, but that is never going to be a substitute for participation in the cultures, you know, the the ethnic cultures, the racial cultures, the religious cultures. And that's why, you know, I encourage families, no matter what religious label they give their kids to, you know, take the kids to church, take them to synagogue, let them smell and taste and hear this culture because reading about it is not the same thing. <laughs> oh, I love that. I, I love that. Okay. 
Um, I feel like I owe you like $225 now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But beyond that, I want to say thank you so much for this wonderful book. And thanks for your work in it. Can you, one, tell us what's next? And then where can people find you if they want to connect or keep up with your writing? Yes. Um, Follow me on Twitter at beingbotha. Uh, you can find me on my website at susankatzmiller.com. And the book is up in all the independent bookstores. You can order it, Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. And I have so many projects I want to work on next, but they all relate to interfaith families. So I'm trying to prioritize I've got a list well, of Well, you've only just begun this conversation, clearly. It, yeah. it just seems like there, there's so much more to talk about. You know, you do have the chapter about the grown-up kids who've actually, you know, lived, have that lived experience of growing up interfaith, but I, I would love to see a whole book of interviews with those kids to that's, see what, what happens and what happens. That's yeah. definitely on the list of projects. And oh, I would... I have an ambition to get to the Mixed Remixed Festival this year or one of these years. <laughs> I think we should make it 2016. Um, All right. Let's, let's talk get email about that because I, I really want to include this conversation more and more in what we're doing. It comes up on a tangent, even yes. though it's central. You know, it, it's always yes. central, and yet it's on the side. So I want to yeah. put it in the forefront. and. I'm just so grateful for the work you do. Thank you, Susan, so much for joining me today. Well, I appreciate all the work you do, and I love the synergies. So thank you so much for having me. All right. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I hope I didn't put you guys through too much during that podcast, but I really found this to be fascinating. The book is called Being Both, Embracing Two Religions and One Interfaith Family. And there are so many synergies, similarities, parallels, as well as differences between these experiences of being biracial and bicultural or biracial and interfaith. And um, I think we need to learn from each other so that we can create new questions and create a new presence, really, around these issues because we're, we're connected in this way, and we have a lot to learn from each other. Again, the book being both Embracing Two Religions and One Interfaith Family. I'd love to hear any questions you have. Uh, you can email me at Heidi at HeidiWDeroe.com. I'm also on Twitter at Heidi DeRoe. I want to thank you all for uh, listening in. I'll be off next week. It's Labor Day. Yay! <laughs> Except that means the summer is over. And then back again on September 14th with another episode. The new season starts on season three. I can't tell you who the guest is yet, but it's really great. He has a Pulitzer Prize. That's all I can tell you. Um, Anyway, my name is Heidi DeRoe. This is The Mixed Experience, and thanks so much for joining Joining me. I will talk to you again on September 14th. Bye-bye. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.